So God's word in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord, would you use your word to exhort, to convict, to encourage so that we might see accurately who we are and who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, some of you may have seen the movie Jim Carrey starred in in 1998 called The Truman Show. The show began at Truman's birth, and for every single day of his life, he has been in a huge dome with hidden cameras everywhere. The show has existed for decades, but Truman is unaware that he's in a fake town called Sea Haven. Spoiler alert, but you've had 24 years to see it. Truman begins to realize that he is not, that everything is not normal in Sea Haven. In fact, everything seems to revolve around him. He goes to leave town, and all of a sudden there's traffic everywhere, to which he leaves and returns seconds later, and all the traffic is gone. Well, he so desperately wants to leave town that he departs on a sailboat. Well, the director of the show, Christoph, sends a massive storm hoping to send Truman home. Then, in an unprecedented move, when Truman won't be diverted, Christoph speaks to Truman. Truman hears this voice, not sure where it comes from, looks up, and he says, Who are you? Christoph replies, I'm the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. Truman replies, then who am I? And Christoph replies, you're the star. It's a pivotal moment in the movie and one which was purposefully done to make us ask bigger questions. You know, the names Christoph, Christ, and true man were not chosen randomly. And as Truman looks to the sky, so we often look up and wonder, who is the creator of this world? And then the next logical question, once we know the creator, then who are we? What is our existence? What are we doing here? So who is God? What is he, she, it, they, whatever, like? How can we know them? What about us? Who are we? Are we soul beings just at another stage in reincarnation? Are we part of the circle of life? 
Are we just a more intelligent or highly evolved animal? Are we valuable? Are we worthless? What are we even doing here? Do we have any transcendent purpose? Or is there really not any purpose, but you just kind of make up your purpose, I make up my purpose, but you know, really, it's just our own that we're doing? Well, in verses 7 through 13 of Ephesians 3, Paul is giving his identity, who he is, and his mission, what he's doing. And once he knows that, we'll see it puts his life in perspective. This morning, we're going to focus on Paul's identity, who am I, and then next week, his mission, and we'll see how that brings focus. But first, we'll see in verse 7 that Paul says he is, and we'll see that we are graced servants. Then we'll see in verses 8, the beginning part, that he and we are humbled sinners. But first, beginning in verse 7, Paul declares that he was made a minister of the gospel. Minister just comes from the Greek word diakonos. And you probably hear in that word, a word we still use today, deacon. Deacon just means a servant. And here it's one of the many places where the word diakonos is used. It's not referring to the title or role, it's just referring to the function. He is a servant. He is one who serves. In other words, Paul lives for something and someone bigger than himself. Now, to a culture fascinated with fame, with glory, with recognition, this probably strikes us that Paul has low self-esteem. That Paul needs a bigger vision. Why, you want to serve other people? And yet the reality is we're all serving something or someone, perhaps even ourselves. And thus the issue is not, do you serve, but what or who are you serving? And Jesus makes clear that serving others is the goal we should have. You may know his disciples once got into a dispute about who was the greatest. And then Jesus replied to them in Luke 22, 25-27, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you, Jesus says, as the one who serves. Jesus came among them as one who serves. Jesus, the one who existed for all time. Jesus, the one who before he took on flesh, never had a single need. Jesus, the one who is truly the greatest, and he came to serve. Jesus not only serves, but he tells us that we are greatest when we serve others. We're blessed and honored to serve. Thus Jesus said in John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. God blesses us for serving Him. And it's a joy and honor to serve others. Some of you know that we've been having some work done on our house. And this week I was talking to the man who was repairing our floors. And he told me how he first learned how to work on hardwood floors in San Diego. And then he went up to Los Angeles. And he began to tell me of all the various homes he'd been able to work on. Got to work on one of Mel Gibson's homes. Got to work on Oprah Winfrey's home. The director for the Terminator, James Cameron, and other famous people. He was so excited that years later, even decades, he's still talking about being able to serve on these people's floors. I have a friend in Ohio who works HVAC, and he talks of being able to serve 
Archie Griffin's system. You may or may not know, Archie Griffin won two Heisman trophies. Why do people like to boast of people they've served? Because it's an honor to serve someone important. We feel honored when we get to serve them. And if we look at the world through God's eyes and see the people in it through God's eyes, then everyone is important. Every single person is made in God's image. Well, that doesn't mean we all have equal importance on earth. Yes, horizontally we have different importance. But in God's eyes, each person made in his image, every person, is worthy of honor. And thus it is a joy and blessing to serve them. Paul considered it such a blessing to be a servant of the gospel that he said he had this due to, or according to it tells us, the gift of God's grace. It was a special gift that Paul got to have this unique role of apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, it wasn't a drudgery or a burden or laborious toil to do this. Rather, it was a gift from God to be the apostle. I don't know if you've ever had this experience that you tell your child, I want you to go do this. And they say, do I have to? And you say, no, you get to. They always love that phrase. The privilege of being able to serve. Because Jesus tells us it's more blessed to give than to receive. So do you see God's call on your life as a gift? Wherever you currently are is where God has called you. That doesn't mean you have to stay in that position. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells slaves if they have the opportunity to gain their freedom, they're free to do that. Yet in a mystery, both our choices and God's sovereign direction of our life lead to where God has called us. Thus, many of you are called to be a part of this church. You're called to live in the home you have. You're called to your employment or your retirement or your education or wherever God has you. Do you thank Him for that calling. Remember, Paul is not thanking God for being the apostle to the Gentiles because this has made his life on earth better. In fact, it's the opposite. Paul was a prisoner. Look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. This gift has led him to prison. Paul could give thanks, though, because even though the life under the sun, so to speak, is worse, it's a blessing to serve God. Because when he came to know who God is, then he came to know himself. And how did he come to know God? Well, look at how he describes him. Verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace, God's a gracious being, which has given me to the working of his power. God is powerful. Well, why does Paul mention both of these? Well, because only a being of grace would forgive someone who had persecuted God's followers. You know, Paul had persecuted and killed Christians. Only a God of grace would then forgive that person and make him one of their leaders. And only a God of power could take someone bent on persecuting Christians and make them want to be a follower of Christ. Only a God of grace and power would change a man from focusing on his self-righteousness, what he did to God, to then focusing on Christ's righteousness and what Christ did for him. Only a God of grace and power would send his son to die and rise again to pay the penalty for our sins. And knowing that God thus makes Paul note that it's a gift of God's grace to serve. Notice this important fact. Ministry or service 
is not our gift to God. It's God's gift to us. It's God's kindness that allows us to serve Him. You know, we need God. God doesn't need us. That God gives us eyes to see His beauty, hearts to adore His being, lips to want to rejoice in Him. That is a gift of God's grace to you. And let me add, it's a rich privilege to be your pastor and that you allow me to continue doing so. You know, all callings are a gift from God, but it is a unique privilege to have this calling. So thank you. Yet, we don't always feel that God has given us a gift with our calling. Sometimes we perhaps feel like it's more a prison, that we're chained. You might feel stuck in your life. I'm stuck with these parents. They just don't get life. I'm stuck with these kids. They're always demanding and nagging and wanting to buy more stuff. I'm stuck with my spouse. I'm stuck with my singleness. I'm stuck with my income, my car, my house, my sin struggles, my body, my sin. And we could go on and on. And we don't thank God for this calling. We feel imprisoned by where we are. And yet Paul literally sits in prison and praises God for this gift of ministry that has led to his imprisonment. And in verse 10, he even declares this, the manifold wisdom of God. It's fascinating. Every stroke of letter on the parchment that sent the letter to the Ephesians was done as chains were rattled from one side to the other. And yet even though Paul is every single stroke reminded of his imprisonment, he can still thank God for where he's been called. Thus God uniquely gifts each of us with talents and difficulties with successes and struggles, with wins and losses. And as Paul came to know God and he gave perspective to his circumstances, so if you come to know God, it comes, allows us to know ourselves and know our circumstances. You know, as we come to grasp with our heads and our hearts who God is, then we'll have a true perspective on who we are and what's going on in this life. So who are you? Many people try to understand humans without relation to God. If you read philosophy, you know Plato famously defined humans as featherless bipeds. It's a mind twister there. We're featherless bipeds. To which one of his students plucked a chicken, threw it over the wall, and had a sign, Plato's man. So you can read the philosophers. You can read the sociologists, the anthropologists, and all the various ways people try to understand, well, who are we? Many people will declare, you're special, you're unique. Others will declare, you're nothing, you're just another animal. And yet, on what basis can they declare these things? Only the being who created us has a right to define us. And he's declared we're made in his image. Now, we could spend a whole sermon just on that, but basically, we could note that that means that we're called to reflect Him. That's what images do. We're to reflect His character. And what is His character? God is a God who serves. As we saw earlier, Jesus came as one who serves. So God has gifted, gifted each of us to serve in different ways. We may have chosen for a different type of service than he's given us. We maybe would have chosen to serve being faster or slower. 
We maybe would have chosen to serve being faster or smarter or richer or more popular. We may have chosen to serve, well, look, could I have had less siblings or no siblings or more siblings? And we could go on and on. And yet God in his manifold wisdom has given you the unique ability to live out his character in this time and this place. You know, no one in this room, no one even in your own family has the exact same set of circumstances. And you have the privilege of showing the world what it looks like to trust God and to seek to act like God in those circumstances. Yes, we can look at Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, and see what God is like. However, God has chosen to put his image in each of us so that we can show and tell the world how God would live and act in each circumstance, that we might reflect him and be servants of him. So how would God change a diaper? We'll look at those Christians who are changing diapers. How would God write a paper for school? How would God deal with a boss like that? And we could go on and on. And yet God has given us the unique, unique opportunity to serve him wherever we are. And the way we answer, who am I, will reveal itself in how we respond to such things. You know, the reality is that very few of us have sat down and wrestled with the philosophical question, who am I? But all of us have answered the question with our actions. How we relate to people, what we pursue, what we seek joy in, how we respond to setbacks shows our answer. You know, as Westerners, we think a lot of who am I, but what about who are they? You know, the other 8 billion people on this planet, or maybe the 30 or so other people in this room, are they here to serve me? Or am I here to serve them? You know, to the single, sometimes every person of the opposite sex is viewed only through, well, could I marry that person or not? To the entrepreneur, sometimes every person can morph into, are they a client that is going to bring me money or not? And then they evaluate and assess and treat them that way. To the employee who wants advancement, every person is someone who's either going to help them up the career ladder or someone who's going to be in their way. To the church member or pastor, every person can morph into a project so that we can do good deeds and feel like we're serving God. And yet in all of those, while you might be doing good things, you're actually not serving them. You're serving yourself. And all of this gets back to God. Is God acting for our good or His? You know, that's one of the major questions in the movie The Truman Show I mentioned earlier. Is Christoph, the creator, does he care about Truman? Or is he just trying to make money off his film? Does God care about us? Is he even involved? You know, are we just pawns in this universe that can be disposed of for his greater good? Well, those answers come next because, again, it's as we know God that we know ourselves. And we learn more about God and ourselves in Paul's next description, the beginning of verse 8, where we see the humbled saint, our second point. Paul writes that this Grace was given to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. So this grace was given to Paul, who was the least of all the saints. Now, if we're not careful, we'll miss the importance of what Paul is saying here. Because when he says saints, he doesn't mean the elite Christians, those Christians who have passed the standards of holiness. No, as we saw when we began the letter to the Ephesians, everyone is called a saint. 
Everyone who trusts in Christ is set apart for holy use and holy. Thus, even the church in Corinth, those Christians are called saints. You know, those Christians were fined with gross, unrepentant sins. Those Christians were suing one another. Those Christians were fighting about which apostle was the greatest. They seemingly had no holiness, but Paul called them saints. Why? Because their sainthood, our sainthood, is not tied to our works of holiness, but to Jesus' holy works and Jesus setting us apart. So they and we, if you trust in Christ, are a saint. You are a holy one before God. And that is important to remember because when Paul says he's the least of all the saints, he means he's the least of all Christians. And it's intriguing when you back up and look at Paul's other statements that are similar to this. So I want to explain something that I was shown a long time ago and hopefully will be helpful to you. So we're going to flip around a little bit, but you got to remember Paul wrote this. So there's going to be a lot of little details, but try to keep it clear in your mind. Paul wrote this in AD 60, but let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. For about five years before this, Paul wrote this other letter to the Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 15, 9, about five years before. These are approximations. They didn't date their letters. Didn't have any time stamp on them. So sometime about AD 55, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So about five years before this, Paul writes about who he is, and he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Remember, the apostles were the founders of the church. They're the ones that Christ specifically appointed to write the New Testament and to serve as leaders. And Paul says, look, basically of the leaders, I'm the worst. Well, then five years later, he writes the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesus. And there, as we just saw, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. So five years later, he's come to see, well, actually, I'm not just the worst of the apostles. I'm not even as good as all these Christians. Well, then flip over to 1 Timothy, and we'll look at 1 Timothy 1, because about five years after Ephesians, so about ten years after the letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes to his disciple Timothy. And notice how he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Or you may have heard, the chief of sinners. So now, ten years after saying he's the worst of the apostles, five years after saying he's the worst of the Christians, now Paul's saying, I'm the very worst of all Christians. <coughs> Sorry. Well, how can he say that? Well, he says that because He's come to be more and more amazed at God. And he realizes how far he is, how distant he is from God. You know, the more he's come to understand God's character, the more he's come to realize, I fall so short. The understanding is not merely his actions that are sinful, but that it begins in his heart. So sin, we must remember, is not just our actions, it's any thought, or desire contrary to God. It's when we look to anything else for satisfaction or hope or meaning. And Paul looks at his heart and realizes that for the grace of God, he could do anything. 
Thus Paul's not saying, look, if you stack up all the sins people have done by their actions and mine, he's worse. He's not saying that. Rather, Paul's saying is that he looks at his own heart and he then looks at God's character. He goes, I don't know how anyone else could be this horrible. And so when we come to know our character and God's character, we realize that it is only Christ and what his perfect sacrifice on the cross accomplished that we can be saved. It's because of faith in Christ's work on the cross that we have the righteous character of God that we need to be with him. And yet what we're focusing, what I'm focusing on now is what happens once we begin our Christian walk. You know, a lot of times people imagine once you become a Christian, you're saved, and then you generally become better. You become more holy. And in a sense, that's true. Hopefully, you're more mature, you're more godly than you were a year ago or 10 years ago. And yet there's another sense that as you grow as a Christian, you actually feel like you're going down. That you feel like, man, I felt like a sinner last year, but then I came to see how much Christ is a servant. And I know how much I don't want to serve. I am far from God. I come to see how God loves the unlovely, and I know how much trouble I have loving the lovely. And I'm amazed at God's character. And we feel like we're getting worse and worse. Again, the point is not as a Christian, you will become worse in your actions. It's as we come to see God that we come to see how far we fall short of Him. So coming to see more of our sins is actually a good thing. And I say that because the more we come to see more of our sin, the more it makes us turn to Christ for help. It's when we're weak that we're strong. It's when we rely on Him. And that, I think, is what we're seeing in Paul. And we see this vividly dis- displayed in what was read earlier for us by Elaine. Luke 18, 9-14. Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to the temple to pray. Now, we have a challenge in the story in that we hear it differently. Now, when they heard this story originally, they all considered the Pharisee, the good guy, the morally upstanding person. And how does Jesus describe him? Well, when he comes in, the Pharisee begins his prayer by saying, I thank you, God. Well, that sounds like a great way to begin a prayer. He's thanking God. But it's really a backhanded compliment because the thanks he gives is all about me, me, me. The next, in the next two verses, he uses the pronoun I five times. In fact, throughout his prayer, he never asked God for anything because he seems so wonderful himself. Why would he need it? And he even thanks God that he's not like other men, like this tax collector. You know, this tax collector is implying a sense of moral disgust, of superiority. And we'll see that's the problem. The problem is not that he does good and avoids evil. It's that he feels superior to others because of the good he's done. You know, he's lost sight of God's character. And he's focusing more on what he's doing for God and he's comparing himself more with other humans than with God and thus he points out not only what he doesn't do I don't do this I don't do this he also boasts about what he does I fast twice a week I give tithes he says and then Jesus contrasts this with the tax collector coming to pray but he stands afar off and he won't even lift his eyes to heaven 
But he beats his breast and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Rather than all the Pharisees' eyes, the tax collector focuses on God's mercy and his own sin. And it's interesting, when you look at the passage, when he cries out for mercy, he doesn't use the generic word for mercy. He uses a specific word. It's the word that is used for the sacrifice made on the Day of Atonement. It's also used for the Ark of the Covenant. His cry is basically, don't just give me mercy or accept me due to me, but give me mercy and accept me due to the sacrificial lamb. Thus the Pharisee in Jesus' parable approaches God with his good actions, whereas the tax collector confesses his sin and cries out to God to look to the sacrificial lamb for sin. And then Jesus shocked his hearers, for he declared, This man, the tax collector, went home justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. And he explains, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus is saying, the point is, how do you view yourself? If you looked at what they did, the Pharisee was a much better person. And yet he had a view that he was morally superior to others. In his own estimation, he was pretty close to God. In contrast, the tax collector was declared righteous, not because of all the good things he did, but rather because he admitted that he wasn't what he should be. His humility, his accurate view of himself, led to his exaltation. And that's what we're seeing here as we flip back to Ephesians chapter 3, that Paul is a humbled saint. He declares, I'm the least at this point, of all the saints. You know, Paul had been a Pharisee as well, who, though he would have declared theologically we're saved by grace, was boasting a lot about, oh, look how wonderful I am, look at how great I am. And yet when he came to see Christ on the Damascus road, he came to realize it's not about my actions for God, it's about what God did for me. And Paul's realizing at this point that he is the least of all the saints, and that shapes his identity. You remember that our identity starts with what we think of God and then what we think of ourselves. To mention the Truman Show one last time, Christoph, the creator, is really just a tyrant. He only cares about Truman as long as he will bring money to the show, and thus he's willing to kill Truman if he wants to leave. Truman is there to do his bidding, make him money. And yet that's not what God is like. God is the one who sent his son to be the sacrificial lamb. God doesn't sit back and watch us in our suffering. He does not cheerfully and eagerly punish us, but rather he wants us to escape that punishment. God entered the world through his son to take the punishment on himself. And God didn't have to do that, but it's completely due to his grace. Thus, any suffering we endure as Christians is due to his love, not his anger. It's his working in me for his glory and our good. Thus Paul can write these truths. He can write about the gift of God's service because he's seen all he deserves from God is his punishment. Some of you may remember when Gavin was with us at one Sunday as he was here, he got up quickly and left in the middle of the service. I was wondering what was going on and then later he told me, well, I, my phone started blowing up because I kept getting text 
that my money was being withdrawn from my uh, debit card account. Gavin, praise God, was able to stop it and then later get the money reimbursed. But his identity had been stolen. And people want to steal our identity and use it for their good. It's not just scammers and thieves who seek to steal our identity. The world, our flesh, and the devil are trying constantly to give us a different identity about who we are. The world says, you're just another animal. You're here for pleasure. Get as much pleasure as you can. The devil's constantly telling us, you're a worthless sinner. I can't believe you do that. And wants us to feel shame. And we often ourselves swing in our identity to we're the most wonderful thing that God ever created, to we're the most worthless thing, and we hate ourselves. And yet God wants us to know that our identity is found in Him. For we are made in His image. And yet that's not the whole story, but we've rebelled and sought life outside of Him. Yet God, in His grace, He sent His Son to be the sacrificial lamb to pay the punishment for our sin that we deserve. Thus, we're graced servants, and we should be humbled sinners. So do you live out of that identity? Who are you? You know, the truth of Christianity is freeing. As we come to see that we are blessed to serve, life is more enjoyable. As we come to see that we are sinners, but God is gracious, we live in the greatest freedom that can ever exist. So who are you? May God and his word define us and may we live out of that identity. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we know who we are. Lord, such a basic question and yet there's so many answers given to us. Answers from people trying to use and abuse and sometimes that's how we view others. They're there just for us to help us get the next thing we want but Lord, we thank you that you are not like that. You're a God of grace. You're a God of power. You're a God of love. And so we come to you thanking you that you sent your son and that in him we have our meaning, our life, and our identity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.